Part One, Chapter One of Australia Felix. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Australia Felix by Henry Handel Richardson. Part One, Chapter One. On the summit of one of the clay heaps, a woman shot into silhouette against the sky. An odd figure, clad in a skimpy green petticoat with a scarlet shawl held about her shoulders, wisps of frowsy red hair standing out around her head, she balanced herself on the slippery earth, spinning her arm like the vane of a windmill, and crying at the top of her voice, "'Joe, boys! Joe! Joe! Joey!' It was as if, with these words, she had dropped a live shell in the digger's midst. A general stampede ensued, in which the cry was caught up, echoed and re-echoed, until the whole flat rang with the name of Joe. Tools were dropped, cradles and tubs abandoned, windlasses left to kick their cranks backwards. Many of the workers took to their heels, others in a fright scuttled aimlessly hither and thither like barnyard fowls in a panic. Summoned by shouts of, "'Up with your boys! The traps are here!' Numbers ascended from below to see the fun, while as many went hurriedly down to hiding in drive and chamber. Even those diggers who could pat the pocket in which their licence lay ceased work and stood about with sullen faces to view the course of events. Only the group of Chinamen washing tail-heaps remained unmoved. One of them, to whom the warning woman belonged, raised his head and called a Chinese word at her. She obeyed it instantly, vanishing into thin air. The rest went impassively on with their fossicking. They were not such fools as to try to cheat the government of its righteous dues. None but had his licence safely folded in his nose-cloth and thrust inside the bosom of his blouse. Through the labyrinth of tents and mounds a gold-laced cap could be seen approaching— then a gold-tressed jacket came into view, the white star on the forehead of a mare. Behind the commissioner, who rode down thus from the camp, came the members of his staff. These again were followed by a body of mounted troopers. They drew rein on the slope, and simultaneously a line of foot-police, backed by a detachment of light infantry, shot out like an arm, and walled in the flat to the south. On the appearance of the enemy the babble redoubled. There were groans and catcalls. Along with the derisive joeys, the rebel diggers hurled any term of abuse that came to their lips. "'The dolly-mops! The skunks! The bush-rangers! Oh, damn em, damn em, damn their bloody eyes!' "'It's Russia, that's what it is,' said an oldish man, darkly. The commissioner, a horse-faced solemn man with brown side-whiskers, let the reins droop on his mare's neck, and sat unwinking in the tumult. His mien was copied by his staff. Only one of them— a very young boy, who was new to the colony and his post, changed colour under his gaudy cap, went from white to pink and from pink to white again, while at each fresh insult he gave a perceptible start and gazed dumbfounded at his chief's insensitive back. The bloodhounds had begun to track their prey. Rounding up with a skill born of long practice, they drove the diggers before them toward the centre of the flat. Here they passed from group to group and from hole to hole, calling for the production of licences with an insolence that made its object see red. They were nice of scent, too, and nine times in ten pounced on just those unfortunates who, through carelessness or lack of means, or on political grounds, had failed to take out the month's licence to dig for gold. Every few minutes one or another was marched off between two constables to the government camp for fine or imprisonment. Now it was that it suddenly entered Long Jim's head to cut and run. Up until now he had stood declaring himself a free-born Briton, who might be drawn and quartered if he ever again paid the blasted tax. 
but as the police came closer a spear of fright pierced his befuddled brain, and inside a breath he was off and away. Had the abruptness of his start not given him a slight advantage, he would have been caught at once. As it was, the chase would not be a long one. The clumsy, stiff-jointed man slithered here and stuck fast there, dodging obstacles with an awkwardness that was painful to see. He could be heard sobbing and cursing as he ran. At this point the Commissioner, half-turning, signed to the troopers in his rear. Six or seven of them shook up their bridles and rode off, their scabbards clinking, to prevent the fugitives' escape. A howl of contempt went up from the crowd. The pink-and-white subaltern made what was almost a movement of the arm to intercept his superior's command. It was too much for Long Jim's last mate, the youthful Blackbeard, who had pluckily descended the shaft after the accident. He had been standing on a mound with a posse of others, following the man-hunt. At his partner's crack-brained dash for the open, his snorts of indignation found words. "'Gore blimey, is the old fool gone dotty?' Then he drew a whistling breath. "'No, it's more than flesh and blood. Stun buck, boys!' And though he was as little burdened with the licence as the man under pursuit, he shouted, "'Help! Help! For God's sake! Don't let them have me!' shot off down the slope, and was off like the wind. His foxly object was attained. The attention of the hunters was diverted. Long Jim, seizing the moment, vanished underground. The younger man ran with the lightness of a hare. He had also the hare's address in doubling and turning. His pursuers never knew did he pass from sight behind a covert of tents and mounds, where he would bob up next. He avoided shafts and pools as if by a miracle, ran along greasy planks without a slip, and where these had been removed to balk the police, he jumped the holes, taking risks that were not for a sane man. Once he fell, but enslimed from head to foot, wringing wet and hatless, was up again in a twinkling. His enemies were less sure-footed than he, and times without number measured their length on the oily ground. Still one of them was gaining rapidly on him, a giant of a fellow with long thin legs, and soon the constable's foot filled the prints left by the younger man's while these were still warm. It was a fine run. The diggers trooped after in a body. The flat rang with cheers and plaudits. Even the commissioner and his retinue trotted in the same direction. Eventually the runaway must land in the arms of the mounted police. But this was not his plan. Making as though he headed for the open, he suddenly dashed off at right angles, and with a final spurt brought up dead against a log and canvas store which stood on rising ground. His adversary was so close behind that a collision resulted. The digger's feet slid from under him, he fell on his face, the other on top. In their fall they struck a huge pillar of tin dishes, ingeniously built up to the height of the store itself. This toppled over with a crash, and the dishes went rolling down the slope between the legs of the police. The dog chained to the flagstaff all but strangled himself in his rage and excitement, and the owner of the store came running out. "'Purdy, you! What in the name of—' The digger adroitly rolled his captor over— and there they both sat side by side on the ground, one gripping the other's collar, both too blown to speak. A cordon of puffing constables hemmed them in. The storekeeper frowned. "'You've no licence, you young beggar!' And, "'Your licence, you scoundrel!' demanded the leader of the troop. The prisoner's rejoinder was a saucy, "'Now, then, out with the cuffs, Joe!' He got on his feet as bidden, but awkwardly, for it appeared that in falling he had hurt his ankle. Behind the police were massed the diggers. 
These opened a narrow alley for the camp officials to ride through, but their attitude was hostile, and there were cries of, "'Leave him go, you blaggards! After such a run! None of your bloody quad for him!' along with other more threatening expressions. Sombre and taciturn, the Commissioner waved his hand. "'Take him away!' "'Well, so long, Dick,' said the culprit jauntily, and as he offered his wrists to be handcuffed, he whistled an air. Here the storekeeper hurriedly interposed. "'No, stop, I'll give bail.' And darting into the tent and out again, he counted five one-pound notes into the constable's palm. The lad's collar was released, and a murmur of satisfaction mounted from the crowd. At the sound the giver made as if to retire. Then, yielding to a second thought, he stepped forward and saluted the Commissioner. "'A young hothead, sir. He means no harm. I'll send him up in the morning to apologise. "'I'll be damned if you do,' muttered the digger between his teeth. But the chief refused to be placated. "'Good day, doctor,' he said shortly, and with his staff at heel trotted down the slope, followed till out of earshot by a mocking fire of Joe's. Lingering in the rear, the youthful sympathiser turned in his saddle and waved his cap. The raid was over for that day. The crowd dispersed, its members became orderly, hard-working men once more. The storekeeper hushed his frantic dog, and called his assistant to rebuild the pillar of tins. The young digger sat down on the log that served for a bench, and examined his foot. He pulled and pulled, causing himself great pain, but couldn't get his boot off. At last, looking back over his shoulder, he cried impatiently, "'Dick, I say, Dick Marnie, give us a drink, old boy, I'm dead beat.' At this the storekeeper, a tall, slenderly built man of some seven or eight-and-twenty, appeared, bearing a jug and a pannikin. "'Oh, bah!' said the lad, when he found that the jug held only water. And on his friend reminding him that he might by now have been sitting in the lock-up, he laughed and winked. "'I knew you'd go bail.' "'Well, of all the confounded impudence!' "'Faith, Dick, and do you think I didn't see how your hand itched for your pocket?' The man he called Marney flushed above his fair beard. It was true he had made an involuntary movement of the hand, checked for the rest half-way by the knowledge that the pocket was empty. He looked displeased, and said nothing. "'Don't be afraid. I'll pay you back soon's ever me ship comes home,' went on the young scapegrace, who very well knew how to play his cards. At his companion's heated disclaimer, however, he changed his tone. "'I say, Dick, have a look at my foot, will you? I can't get this damned boot off.' The elder man bent over the injury. He ceased to show displeasure. "'Purdy, you young fool, when will you learn wisdom?' "'Well, they shouldn't hunt old women, then, the swine,' gave back Purdy, and told his tale. "'Oh, law, there go six canaries!' For at his wincing and shrinking his friend had taken a penknife and ripped up the jackboot. Now practised hands explored the swollen, discoloured ankle. When it had been washed and bandaged, its owner stretched himself on the ground, his head in the shade of a barrel, and went to sleep. He slept till sundown through all the traffic of a busy afternoon. Some half a hundred customers came and went. The greater number of them were earth-stained diggers, who ran up for it might be a missing tool, or a hide bucket, or a coil of rope. They spat jets of tobacco-juice, were richly profane, paid where coin was scarce in gold-dust from a match-box, and hurried back to work. But there came also old harridans, as often as not diggers themselves, whose language outdid that of the males, and dirty Irish mothers, besides a couple of the white women who inhabited the Chinese quarter. 
One of these was in liquor, and a great hullabaloo took place before she could be got rid of. Put out, she stood in front of the tent, her hair hanging down her back, cursing and reviling. Respectable women as well did an afternoon shopping there. In no haste to be gone, they sat about on empty boxes or upturned barrels, exchanging confidences, while weary children plucked at their skirts. A party of youngsters entered, the tallest of whom could just see over the counter, and called for shandygaffs. The assistant was for chasing them off with hard words, but the storekeeper put, instead, a stick of barley-sugar into each dirty outstretched hand, and the imps retired well content. On their heels came a digger and his lady-love to choose a wedding outfit, and all the gaudy finery the store held was displayed before them. A red velvet dress flounced with satin, a pink gauze bonnet, white satin shoes and white silk stockings met their fancy. The dewy-lipped, smutty-lashed Irish girl blushed and dimpled, in consulting with the shopman upon the stays in which to lace her ample figure. The digger, whose very paws oozed gold, planked down handfuls of dust and nuggets, and brushed aside a neat paisley shawl for one of yellow satin, the fellow to which he swore to having seen on the back of the governor's lady herself. He showered brandy-snaps on the children, and bought a polka-jacket for a shabby old woman. Then, producing a bottle of champagne from a sack he bore, he called on those presents to give him, after, "'Er most gracious little majesty, God bless her, the holy estate of matrimony.' The empty bottle smashed for luck, the couple departed arm in arm, carrying their purchases in the sack, and the rest of the company trooped to the door with them to wish them joy. Within the narrow confines of the tent, where red herrings trailed over moleskin shorts, and East India pickles and Hessian boots lay on top of sugar and mess-pork, where cheeses rubbed shoulders with tallow candles, blue and red serge shirts and captain's biscuits, where onions and guernseys and sardines, fine combs, cigars and bear's grease, Windsor soap, tinned coffee and hair-oil, revolvers, shovels and Oxford shoes, lay in one grand miscellany. Within the crowded store, as the afternoon wore on, the air grew rank and oppressive. Precisely at six o'clock the bar was let down across the door, and the storekeeper withdrew to his living-room at the back of the tent. Here he changed his coat, and meticulously washed his hands, to which clung a subtle blend of all the stronger-smelling goods that had passed through them. Then, coming around to the front, he sat down on the log and took out his pipe. He made a point, no matter how brisk trade was, of not keeping open after dark. His evenings were his own. He sat and puffed tranquilly. It was a fine night. The first showy splendour of sunset had passed, but the upper sky was still aflush with colour. And in the centre of this frail cloud, which faded as he watched it, swam a single star. End of Part 1 Chapter 1